you can't rely on a quick Google search. It has to be, you might have to scroll to page 10 of Google and really look through the different resources, trying different search queries, looking on YouTube and on Google, looking in the App Store, Google Play Store, like looking in every nook and cranny of the internet. The links and resources mentioned in this episode can be found at languagehacking.com forward slash 135. Welcome to the Language Hacking Podcast from Fluent in Three Months. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. I'm your host, Benny Lewis, and I am joined by Azrin today, and we're going to hear all about his story and hear how he made language learning a big part of his life and his career. So uh, let's jump right in, and I'd love for you to give us your background in how languages became so critical in your life. Sure. So languages have been a part of my life for my whole life, basically. I grew up going to, I grew up here in Canada. So I'd speak English with my friends. At school, I'd speak French because I went to a French immersion school. At home, I would speak Gujarati, which is a language from India. So I grew right from right from a very young age. I, was, I had languages as a very important part of my life. And so I completed all of my education in French from kindergarten all the way up to grade 12. Once I went to university, I did a, a, a major in French as well as Spanish. It was a language and literature degree. I also traveled quite a bit for tourism purposes, for study purposes as well, for volunteer purposes uh, to a number of different countries, such as Peru or Chile, France, a number of times where I studied a lot of, a lot of different countries uh, around the world. And um, I'd say everything started, my interest in language started when I was 15 years old so in high school because I, I did a study abroad in a tiny hamlet in France. So in case people don't know what a hamlet is, I learned the word hamlet on this trip because I didn't know that word. A hamlet is basically smaller than a village. So I lived in a tiny hamlet in France. I went to quote unquote the city for school. And I, call, I say quote unquote the city because it's not a very, it's more of a town than a city, but we called it the city. And that's where I went to high school. And um, yeah, that's that's where really things things started off. Uh, but onward from that, languages uh, became a big part of your career. So how did that happen? So what I do now is I run a business called the Calgary Language Nerds. So I teach various languages. I teach five languages. Primarily, I teach French, Spanish, and Gujarati. Um, but I also teach some English, and then I also teach some Mandarin. And then I also have instructors who work for me, and then they teach a variety of other languages. So in total, we teach 16 different languages. Um, so basically what happened was when I was in university doing my French and Spanish degree, I was also running a window cleaning franchise, residential window cleaning. So not high rise buildings, nothing like that, um, just homes. That franchise basically worked with a lot of a lot of young adults, let's say, primarily that wanted to learn more about business in a reasonably low risk and practical fashion. I say reasonably low risk because listen, it's a franchise and there is some risk involved that you have certain minimum targets to hit, there's certain minimum standards you have to apply yourself to and such, but they really helped a lot. And so I did that basically all throughout university. It was a part-time a part-time focus during my schools and a more than full-time job during my, my spring and summer breaks. Upon graduating, I worked for that franchise as a general manager. So I operated basically Central Canada. And so the five and a half years 
running a window cleaning franchise is where I learned a lot of business fundamentals. So then after that, in 2016, I always knew I wanted to do something with languages. I used to think I'd teach in a school maybe, or maybe be a translator. I didn't really know. But in 2016, when I stopped running a window cleaning franchise, I thought to myself, well, I don't really know what I want to do in languages, but maybe I can start tutoring just me as a one man, as a one man show. I can start small. I can see where it goes. I can put, I can get my feet wet. And that's where it started. So I just was a part-time tutor initially. I did French and, French and Spanish only. I then started to English because I realized I could probably teach English too. <laughs> and then um, slowly expanded from there. Uh, how did you expand that? Because like uh, building a team, especially from what you had learned in the window cleaning company, uh, that can be that can feel like the most intimidating and most impossible uh, place for people to begin if they want to build some kind of a, a language learning business. So how do you go about finding the right people? Um, so I would say that I started with French and so I started with the French and Spanish tutor because I knew those languages well. And so when you start with that, it's much easier to, con to do quality control to see if someone actually is teaching it well, if they know what they're talking about, if they speak the language well even. Because listen, if you don't speak the, the language that the teacher's teaching and they say, yeah, I speak it. I mean, you don't know how to judge that. Sure, maybe they're a native speaker, then fair enough. But if they're not a native speaker, you have no idea how to judge. So I started with French and Spanish only and English as well, English, French and Spanish. That was probably one of the first things that's very practical because then I would know, oh, they're teaching that well. Oh, that's not quite right. Or for example, and I didn't do other languages till much later. Um, I, the first language aside from uh, French, Spanish, and English I chose to offer my business was Mandarin. I didn't teach. In fact, I'm trying to remember if I hired someone or if I started to teach it. I think I can't remember. But again, I picked Mandarin because I was learning it. I had some knowledge of that language. Next, I did German. I don't speak. German at all, a couple of words here and there. But I did German because I really knew the guy who was going to be teaching German. And it, the situation presented itself where it was a very natural fit for him to do it. There's a lot of people that wanted German to happen. They're asking me, the German teacher, he still works for me now. Um, so this is years later. I knew him well because he'd been my French student. I knew him and his wife. They'd been my French student. So I knew them well. I trusted them. He's a really, he's a language learning enthusiast. He loves language. He used to be a mechanic. Um, what do you call that? An airplane mechanic, air, air, aircraft mechanic. There we go. And he stopped doing that so he can pursue languages. So he's a real language learning guy. I knew him. I liked him. I trusted him. So for me to start by doing German with someone like that was an easy way to do so. And as I expanded to different languages, it would often be the case. I really had to feel like either I knew something about the language or that I really felt good about the person that was starting that language off. That's probably the most practical thing I could say, I would think. So obviously, there's um, there's a, a much bigger market for these big languages like French and Spanish and German and English. Uh, but you, you also cover not smaller languages, but languages that are in much less demand than these big languages. So what made you decide to uh, to cover these less popularly studied languages? And how did you go about building the team around them? A lot of them would happen because of what happened organically. I'll give you a couple examples. So we te um, I teach Gujarati. I, have, I myself teach it, and I have, a, I have two Gujarati instructors as well. That's a language that is offered at my business because I feel very warmly towards it. Gujarati is my heritage language. 
I spent a lot of time trying to learn it. And it's a language that has very few resources. And so I feel passionate about that language. So of course, I'm going to offer it. Now, uh, Gujarati is the one language spoken in India, but then another one is Hindi. So once I have a Gujarati instructor, they also speak Hindi. So if they learn how to teach Gujarati, for them to then learn how to teach Hindi is not a far stretch. So it's like, well, I may as well teach Hindi then too. Or, you know, another example is Blackfoot, which is an indigenous language that has something like 2,000 speakers. It's in Alberta, southern Alberta and northern Montana. So Alberta is the province I live in. Montana is a state in the U.S., so they're 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 that we share a border basically and uh, that happened because there's a charity that my business has taught french to for uh, a number of years now and they were looking for blackfoot resources so i told them i can look for a teacher if you want blackfoot classes they said sure now when i offered i had no idea i knew it was an endangered language i didn't know how few speakers there were but i posted in a facebook group the 16 six was he, he 16 or 17 at the time high school student blackfoot speaker he taught himself from a child the parents don't speak the language but he taught himself he's a blackfoot origin he taught himself he's very passionate about it and he's like i'd love to someone wants to learn i'd love to help them he'd been teaching since the eighth grade and so there's a little bit of help that I had to do with him to kind of help him learn to teach and so on and so forth. But again, very organically, someone asked me, I put word out, someone said, hey, I'd be interested. I talked to them. They're very passionate about the subject and off we go. So typically, typically it's been organic factors like that. So uh, I get asked this question a lot by people who want to learn uh, indigenous languages, especially that there are no resources that they can find. So for people who are trying to learn something like Blackfoot or any number of other languages that uh, even have lots of speakers, but just there's not that many resources you'll find if you do a quick Google search for them. What do you recommend they do to, to get exposure and potentially find learning resources? The only thing I've seen work for me, and I'm sure there's other things too, this is a topic I'm not an expert on, but things that have worked for me directly with Gujarati, which doesn't have very many resources, although as many speakers, which is helpful. And then indirectly through, for example, Blackfoot, where I've been working with a Blackfoot speaker now for, I want to say, a year and a half, maybe two years. Um, so a couple things. So one is you can't rely on a quick Google search. It has to be, you might have to scroll to page 10 of Google and really look through different resources, trying different search queries, looking on YouTube and on Google, looking in the app store, Google Play Store, like looking in every nook and cranny of the internet because you, you books even, actual books, not even the internet, physical books, so Amazon, uh, Facebook groups that might exist and then asking people in the groups. And then that's been the only thing that's worked for me is to really look through every every nook and cranny of the internet world, as well as a physical world, asking other lang language, other learners of that language that I come across say, hey, do you guys have anything? And it and for Blackfoot, as well as Gujarati, like we're able to find at least some resources. Now, not as many as you'd like, perhaps not as much as you'd find for Spanish, where anything you'd ever want under the sun, you will be able to find reasonably easily. You can find at least something to go off of. So uh, it sounds like you're your main focus because of how you've uh, developed the school and how you've learned your, your own languages is to speak with uh, the people themselves. Do you combine that with other studies? Like are there particular apps or particular books you're a fan of when you're into learning your own language projects? Um, yes. So there's a couple of go-to resources I like. So I like italki, right? 
Um, in terms of self-study, um, there's some that I use, but there's nothing. Some people really, really rely on their apps or, or self-study programs, not even just apps, but even self-study programs like a Pimsleur or things like that. I don't heavily rely on self-study resources, not to the same way. I'll use them, but I don't, they're not my primary source. A primary source of learning tends to be private lessons, group lessons, um, sometimes language exchange partners. If I can't find a good teacher or something, I might try and look through language exchange apps to find, that's a little hack actually. Sometimes if you can't find a good teacher for a language, like Gujarati is a great example. You, It's hard to find Gujarati teachers, but there's a lots of Gujarati people on apps like HelloTalk. And they're not teachers, but many of them have an aptitude for teaching, even though they're not a teacher. And so they'll like, they're very, they'll very happily go out of their way to help you learn and explain how things work to you and practice speaking with you or, you know, give you exercises. In fact, one of my, one of my um, language exchange partners slash friends, and at this point, uh, he initially used to help me with Gujarati. And then he wanted to teach on a volunteer basis. So he taught like a free volunteer kind of drop in uh, Gujarati and Hindi class for a long time for me. And there's like a small group of people that would go every week and he had a whole Google Classroom going and he figured it out and he never taught languages before, but he really was passionate about it. So sometimes it'll not be a formal teacher that I'm paying, but sometimes I might find someone like that. That's usually the kind of thing I rely on. I also rely on um, a, doing intensive studies. So I'll always, when I can, I'll block off two, three, four weeks to do like a full-time focus, basically full-time focus on the language, whether that means locally here in Calgary, or if I'm going to travel abroad and actually go to the country, I always will do these intensive bursts. That's a big part of what I do. And how is your experience when you do go to those countries? Do you have any uh, kind of like language schools that you were to attend, or are you mainly going to the country to practice the language? Like how does immersion play into your language learning approach yeah so when i do whenever i do immersion i need i will have something planned that takes up the bulk of the day it could be classes right so i might save up for the year save up for a year and a half and get some funds together and then purchase an intensive program from a language school i uh i've done other things for example i went to taipei in 2000 i think it was 2019 before the pandemic and so that was a little different i, I paid for some classes with a friend of mine we both had a similar level so we took i think it was one class every every uh morning or every afternoon whatever it was just kind one a day but then i was teaching i was teaching english to my homestay family so i stayed at the homestay family on purpose i taught english to them every day but in mandarin because the kids it was to the kids kids do not speak basically any english they spoke very very little and so that was a, another form of practice but making sure i've got something structured that's that i'm busy doing it could be a class it could be volunteering i volunteered in a school in peru and i'm going to go to mexico more for touristy purposes because I, I speak spanish quite well but i'm going to go to mexico in january and and I'm probably gonna do something very similar. Like I'm very fluent in Spanish, but I haven't immersed myself in Spanish in a long time. So I'm probably, I'm thinking of uh, maybe signing up for some kind of, not a Spanish class, but maybe like a, I don't know, like a salsa class, like intensive salsa lessons or something that takes up a good chunk of the day every day or cooking classes, the homestay family I'm going to stay with that I'm most likely going to stay with their, their chefs. So I might ask them like, hey, can you give me cooking class every day? Like having something structured that allows me to practice or learn could be classes where it's directly being taught. Um, having something daily that's scheduled at least for a couple of hours, at least, is uh, really helpful for me. And something that you've... Um... You've mentioned uh, online a few times is that you got a lot of inspiration from the online language learning community. Um, so how did you find the community and how has it changed your experience with languages? 
Totally. So what happened was is I somehow stumbled across a video called Teen Speaks. I think it was Teen Speaks 20 Languages. And it was, uh, what's his name? Tim Donor, I think his name is. I believe that's his name. Stumbled across that. It was in the tail end of my window cleaning franchise days. Kind of, I hadn't, I, I think I was still working there, but I was basically done. And I stumbled across his video and I was inspired by him. I thought, wow, this guy speaks 20 languages. At that time, I spoke, I want to say, three well, English, French, and Spanish. And then two intermediate, like Mandarin and not even intermediate, actually, for Mandarin. But anyway, two that I was learning. And I was like, wow, this guy speaks 20. And I watched the video. We shared a story of how when he was a child, he started to learn, to learn languages. And I thought to myself, that could have been me. Like if I had a different set of circumstances, I could have been that guy. Because I liked languages growing up, too. I just never went out of my way to learn them. I thought, man, that could have been me. Oh, man, I should really spend more time into this language thing. And I thought, what can I do? How, how can I go about doing this? Should I just like try to learn more languages? Should I? So I thought, I wonder if there's online language learning communities. I Googled it and I wasn't doing the right search queries at first. So I wasn't finding much. But I found the Polyglot Conference website. And I was like, wow, there are people who get together for languages. Like, what? And uh, that's how I got that introduction into the language learning community. And how has your experience with language learning changed since you found the community? That's a good question. Probably not a lot, to be honest. I mean, my core strategies for learning are roughly the same. I take classes, I travel abroad. I've always done self-study, uh, even though I didn't previously when I did self-study, I just would find, you know, like I find whatever I could by myself. And then after finding the community, I guess the really the biggest thing that's probably changed is that I know of more resources that exist, whereas before I didn't know of as many. Um, I'm a more educated language learner, but it's a lot of what I've learned confirmed things that I knew, but but didn't consciously know that I knew. So I'd be like, oh, you know, a great example would be something like, um, I don't know, something like uh, looking at comprehensible input. I was like, well, that just makes sense. Oh, yeah, I, I, I guess I always, I always knew that at some level, but I couldn't have articulated it like that. So not, it hasn't changed a lot. In, in its core, the core of how I learn languages is, is, is the same, but it's added resource. I know about more resources now. I know I can articulate my knowledge more than I could have before. And I'm definitely a better teacher than I was before. Definitely that's helped in terms of teaching side. And um, something that I think you wrote about recently was uh, a few tips uh, for uh, people who are at the intermediate level and want to go beyond that. And that's also a very big thing a lot of people struggle with is they'll hit a plateau when they get to that stage. So what kind of tips do you suggest for people who get stuck at that intermediate plateau? Yeah, I have a brand new one. This one, if you'd asked me 72 hours ago, I couldn't have told you. It's a brand new one for me. So here's something that is be very practical. Um, there's everyone knows, or many, most language learners will know, especially if they're listening to a podcast like this, they'll have heard of the CEFR. So the, in case you don't know, this is a common European framework of reference. So there's six primary, the six different levels levels of proficiency that someone can have and kind of that B1 is where people will often get they'll start to plateau so B1's like that low intermediate maybe you get like partially between B1 B2 so mid intermediate somewhere in there people get stuck well people a lot of I definitely didn't know this um, until very recently there's something called the CEFR uh, it's called the companion guide it's a 278 page document made by the Council of Europe that goes into that digs into the CEFR in minute detail. So it breaks down, for example, the A1 level or A2 level, but it breaks it down into the into minute detail. So it'll say, for example, A1 listening. And it'll say, what does it mean to have an A1 listening when you have when you're listening to a live audience? What does it mean A1 listening if you're watching an online video? 
What does it mean A1 listening if you're talking to someone or so on and so forth? There's a whole list and it gives these very detailed criteria. It's way more detailed than anyone would probably need unless you're a curriculum designer. But what I found very helpful myself recently was skimming through the document, looking through the headings, skimming through the pages, stopping when I see something that looked relevant to me and reading like, oh, that's interesting. And so why do I bring this document up? The reason I bring it up is because when you look through the document and you start to look through some of the B1 specific requirements, you're going to see when you look through it, you're going to find weaknesses that are holding you back from moving forward that you didn't know were weaknesses. You didn't realize that, oh, that is something I suck at. Oh, that would help me get better. Oh, right. Okay. That's the experience I had while scanning through it. In fact, I read it. I read it quite in a detailed fashion because it helps me with my teaching and curriculum development. And I really learned a lot. But from a learning perspective, I think just skim, taking 20 minutes, skimming through it, you'll find gaps that you have that you didn't consciously realize you had. And you'll say, ah, that's what I really have to work on. I didn't realize that the reason I'm, I struggle is because my coherence sucks. Oh, okay. Oh, I didn't realize I'm not good at mediation. Ah, that, how do I work on mediation? Ah, for me, it's the range, aka vocabulary. Oh, oh for me, it's the fluency. Oh, I, I can't speak. Oh, that's my gap. It'll help you find your gaps, I think, if you take 20 minutes to go through. Yeah, that's interesting because I've only ever seen the, the summary on, on Wikipedia that's uh, a lot more concise. So I didn't realize there was a whole document. I'll have to actually look into that. Um, so... Uh, you've got your five languages and you'd like to learn at least three more. So do you have like a, a plan in place of what, uh, or an idea of what your next languages will be, or what does the future of your language business look like? Yeah, let's start on the language learning side. So I speak English, French, and so English is my first language, French and Spanish. I speak at a C2 level as a fun little tangent, a little, uh, what do you call that? A little hidden gem. Uh, so if you read that companion guide, one thing you may not, people listening to this may not know, is there's actually an elusive seventh level of proficiency. There's actually a seventh level, but they don't measure for it because a C2 is pretty common knowledge. I would say that a C2 is not as fluent as you could get, but it's been empirically proven now, I think it was back in 2001, that no, 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 a C2 definitely is not the highest you can have. You actually could have something higher and then you're something I think the term that's used in the companion guide is something like um, ambilingual, I believe is the term they use, which is more than bilingual. And it's more like you truly can switch in all social cir circumstances between two languages or three whatever languages. Anyway, that's a fun aside. So in my French and Spanish, I'm at, I'm at a C2. When I'm in a country that speaks a language I'm immersed, I, I would typically get closer to that elusive seventh level. But right now, more of a C2. Um, in, my, in my Gujarati and Mandarin, I'm somewhere in certain respects I'm already at a, at a B2 level. In other respects, I'm probably closer to like a B1.5. Depends on what aspects you're looking at and how technical you want to get with it. When I learn languages, I take it and I keep sticking with them until I have a strong C1 or, or C2 or above. Like I want, and in every respect, listening, reading, writing, pronunciation. Like if you close your eyes and you don't look at me, I want you to think I'm Chinese or or that I'm from Mexico, or that I'm from France, or whatever country. Like, that's how strong I like to be, um, or as close as I can. So it takes me years upon years. So because of that, my Mandarin and Gujarati still have a long way to go, because I'm not near a C2 in those languages. So I still have a long way for those two. The next one will very likely be Hindi, because it's so close to Gujarati that I feel like that's a quicker one just to pick up. After that, well, we'll be likely, I haven't decided, but likely Arabic, but I haven't decided. And then 
after that Russian. It may come Russian first, Arabic next. I don't really know that I haven't decided, but Arabic and Russian will be up there after Hindi. And then we'll see, you know, that's going to take me a good 20, 30 years to get to a C2 in those. Like that's not, that's not an overnight project. <laughs> so we'll see after that if I add any more. And how is your language business going to evolve in the next years? Probably just keep growing like it is. So slowly add languages when, when um, in an organic fashion. So when the opportunity arises to add a language. So just three days ago, a, Ma- a Mandarin student of mine was like, hey, I want to take Korean lessons. Do you offer Korean? I said, no, but I can find someone if you want. So looks like I'll be offering Korean soon. If you're listening to this, do you want to be a Korean teacher? Reach out. <laughs> Um, so we'll offer Korean soon. So yeah, slowly add languages as opportunities arise to do so. Um, yeah, keep finding more students, keep making more content across different language, social, you know, social platforms. Nothing, nothing, um, what's the word? Nothing uh, revolutionary as of this point. Just keep going and slowly, steadily. And one of the things that I, one of the things that I believe in for, for business, um, business for sure, as well as other aspects of life, is I like to uh, keep my eye open for serendipity, for coincidences that work in your favor, something that you couldn't have ever predicted, but but it works very well in your favor. So I always have my eye open for things that could be like, that allow me to go from point A to point B, and it's a big jump. So most years is just like little incremental improvements, but I keep an eye open for little things that could be the thing could be the opportunity that takes me to a much bigger place in a very short period of time. And uh, you only need you only need one or two or three of those to to uh, be in a place that you don't even recognize, you know, that you could have never imagined. And one question I always like to ask people on the podcast is what is your definition of language hacking? So if you had to summarize language hacking and how it's involved in your life, how would you do that? I would say it is finding the shortcuts finding the required shortcuts to reaching your desired your desired level of proficiency something like that you're trying to get to you know going to mexico and being a tourist while learning the language in such a way where you're only focusing on what would be needed to go be a successful tourist or whatever it is right everyone's learning for different purposes but find cutting the corners of what doesn't matter right for based on your reasons for learning and hacking hacking quote unquote your way to that level yep that's uh, that's very well said. So I think we'll leave it at that and we will leave links in the show notes so people can find uh, your your online business and they can find all of your social media. So all of that will be clickable for people. And uh, I appreciate you joining us today. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And for everybody listening, until the next time, I'll wish you a very happy language learning. So that was my chat with Azrin. And as always, I like to give you guys a quick takeaway. So what he said about the Sefer guide, I did not know that. I only ever thought of the uh, brief paragraph or two summaries. So my big takeaway is that maybe I should download the official Sefer guide and use it for a similar purpose to what he said, that I could examine where I am in a language I want to work on and see where my weak points are and what I should potentially work on. And obviously, one way I do this is by just sitting an exam, but uh, by simply skimming these summaries, I think I could find uh, inspiration for particular things that I could work on in the languages that are my biggest priority. 
So I'm definitely going to do that. And I also like what he said about uh, finding something structured, some structured classes during immersion. And uh, that's very true. That's something I'm doing while, as I record this, I'm in Mexico and I'm going out of my way to try to meet interesting uh, people. And I try to do events and, so, and such and uh, learning experiences. So I definitely echo the importance of signing up to classes, whether that be dance classes, cooking classes in the country itself, that can give you a lot more than you would think. So a couple of great takeaways there. I hope you've enjoyed the episode as well. As always, reach out to me on social media and let me know if there's somebody you'd like me to interview on the podcast. And until the next time, I'll wish you a very happy language learning. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you found this episode valuable and want to help us out, please leave us a review at languagehacking.com forward slash review. The Language Hacking Podcast is presented by Benny Lewis, Shannon Kennedy, and Elizabeth Bruckner, and produced by Alice Semino, with special thanks to the Fluent in Three Months team. The theme music was written and performed by Shannon Kennedy. Find the show notes at languagehacking.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening and happy language learning.